The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. It's good stuff, my friends. It is a great day here broadcasting to you from Albany, Oregon. It has been absolutely gorgeous up here. And it is good, good stuff to be going through this wonderful book uh, referred to affectionately by members of Alcoholics Anonymous as the Big Book. And uh, we've been walking through this thing now for several weeks. Uh, This is show 31. And uh, we've been going through this thing word by word, sentence by sentence, uh, just really doing a very thorough job. And uh, that is with, of course, uh, our <clears throat> our. Um, I was. I guess I'm the Sherpa, and you're the. Uh, 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 what, what would you call it? The the, the guide. Is, um, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. So you go Sherpa oxygen. You know. <laughs> you can't so, do it without the Sherpas, though. No, that's true. That's true. So, uh, folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, that's okay. We don't either. <laughs> um, but but anyway, uh, if you have your big book, please get it out and. Uh, uh, your highlighters and pencils and pens or whatever you do do to take notes. I really encourage you guys. I haven't talked about this a lot, but I really do encourage you guys to um, go through this and go through it more than once and sit down and uh, uh, please take notes. Do some journaling as you're going. Um, you'll want to do that because what an, a, a great opportunity to to uh, get some, some real good in-depth information to pass on to others. And sometimes we don't you know, we run out of room on the margins and so forth in our books as we need to make some notes in a, a, a separate. I've got three by five cards falling out all over the place. But um, I don't know about you, Chris, but a lot of times when I listen and I write, I, t- I tend to retain more. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. When you transfer something down onto paper, uh, it makes it much a much deeper experience. We are at uh, Chapter 10, Two Employers. Um, and Chris, you're going to do something a little different. Tell us what's going on. Uh, okay, um, Monty, we've done this before in the show. Every once in a while where the material uh, is what is at least the way I consider it more interesting from the original manuscript than it is from the text of the big book, I like to jump back to the original manuscript. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, again, a brief update on what that was. Uh Bill had worked very, very hard at putting the manuscript together. It was a collaborative effort, at least for, you know, the first half of the text was a was really a collaborative effort. 
<clears throat> and what happened was uh, they had an original manuscript, and it was a it was a uh, you know a, a typed manuscript, and they passed that around prior to publication of the book. And many people made suggestions uh, about changes that they really thought needed to happen mm-hmm. uh, prior to publishing the book. And why I like to go back to the original manuscript is that's really the way the alcoholics left it. Uh, they take the original manuscript and they hand it out to uh, uh, psychiatrists, uh, doctors, um, uh, ministers, and, and priests, and you know, editors. Right. And all of those changes, a lot of those changes were incorporated. So it ended up being a little bit of a different text, the first printing, first edition, than than the way you know Bill uh, Bill had uh, had finished it off. So going back sometimes to the original manuscript, sometimes you drill a little bit deeper into what uh, what they're talking about. It has a little bit more emphasis on action, a little bit more emphasis on what you need to do rather than what we did. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, th- this chapter to employers, uh, it's got significant changes that were made uh, prior to the publication of the first printing, first edition. Um, to employers, uh, the oral tradition... Uh, states that Hank Parkhurst is basically the person who wrote this story, but if you you know if you're a, a a big book guy, you can you can still hear the voice of Bill Wilson in it. So I think it was heavily redacted uh, by by Bill Wilson after Hank handed him uh, the uh, uh, the story. You, you can you can you can hear Bill Wilson's voice in it, uh-huh. yet it's Hank Parkhurst, uh, the, the person who's, who really wrote this. And the reason was, <clears throat> you know, uh, Bill, Bill was uh, just a, a wonderful guy, and he would surround himself with people who were enthusiastic about the same things he was enthusiastic about. And prior to the writing of this big book, Hank Parkhurst was, you know, his buddy. And he was Hank was the guy who was the most enthusiastic, and Bill and Hank were you know driving all around together and doing a lot of things together. They actually shared an office. Hank had uh, had had an office uh, uh, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, for the Honor Dealers. Uh, Honor Dealers was basically uh, uh, an organization he put together to try to break the oil monopolies. He was really upset with the Rockefellers and all and the people who were basically controlling and and price fixing oil. So he wanted to get a bunch of independent uh, people together to try to you know compete against these these big people. And his idea was honor dealers, and it never it never went anywhere. It was a failed business, but they had the office in Newark, New Jersey, and Bill would show up every every day. And instead of doing honor dealer business, you know, Bill Bill would uh, would co-opt uh, Hank's uh, secretary, and they would do versions of you know they would do different drafts of different chapters of the big book. So when it came to writing the chapter to employers, Hank had more uh, more experience. Being an employer than Bill did, Bill never really had hired uh, or fired people or had a lot of people underneath him. He never seemed to to, to do that. He was on Wall Street and pretty much uh, a lone wolf for most of his career. But Hank, on the other hand, uh, worked down on the uh, Panama Canal and a number of other jobs where he literally had hundreds of employees, and he did a lot of the, the early human resource work of, of hiring and firing. So Bill said, Hank, you, you know, you're you're the one who really should uh, should write this this chapter. So that's the oral oral tradition on it. And again, I'm sure that Bill 
went through and did a rewrite to it. Uh, Hank Hank uh, relapsed uh, very, very close to or around the time that the book Alcoholics Anonymous was printed. So he, you know, he never got any real credit uh, uh, for for this. Uh, only, you know, only from Bill himself. And, you know, it wasn't well. Hank wasn't really well known as uh, as we move through the history of Alcoholics Anonymous because he was pretty much unsuccessful. But he actually owned a, a third of the stock in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. Bill owned a third, and a third was sold uh, to friends and AA members uh, to to publish this. So um, Hank actually uh, turned in his third his third of the stock for a bunch of furniture or, or some, <laughs> some crazy deal, you know, like we're, it's worth, you know, $10 million today, the stock. And, uh, and he traded it in for, you know, a couple of desks or something, but you know, that, that's kind of the story. That's just a little prequel to, uh, uh, to employers. I'll, I'll get started reading. And, and again, if you're, if you're following along in the big book, don't say, what book is he reading from? You know, there are, there are different changes. Uh, there There's differences between the original manuscript and uh, the story in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Chris, uh, explain to people what you mean by the original manuscript. You're not talking about the first edition. You're talking no. about the original manuscript. The original manuscript uh, was what was passed around. It was, you know, it was, um, you know, it was like a soft cover stapled together mimeographed thing and they passed it around and it was maybe maybe you could probably call it the final edit of uh, the book alcoholics anonymous prior to publication um the the first edition uh is quite i'm actually uh, i've actually been reading from a first edition uh, as we've been going through this this show uh but the original manuscript uh was just passed around uh between aa people uh, it never it never received publication until you know twenty years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Okay, two employers. One of our friends, and that would be Hank Parkhurst, whose gripping story you have read. I believe that story is the unbeliever in the first edition. A really remarkable story. Um, has spent much of his life in the world of big business. He has hired and fired hundreds of men. He knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere. But let him tell you. I was at one time assistant manager of a corporation department employing 6,600 men. One day my secretary came in saying that Mr. B insisted on speaking with me. I told her to say that I was not interested. I had warned this man several times that he had but one more chance. Not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford on two successive days, so drunk he could hardly speak. I told him he was through, finally and forever. My secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone, it was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected a plea for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you, Paul jumped from the hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying you were the best boss he'd ever had and that you were not to blame in any way. Another time, as I opened the letter which lay on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he had placed his foot on the trigger of a loaded shotgun. The barrel was in his mouth. I had discharged him for drinking six weeks before. Still another experience. 
A woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company's insurance was still in force. Four days before, he had hanged himself in his woodshed. I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I have ever known. Here were three exceptional men, lost to this world because I did not understand, as I do now. Then I became an alcoholic myself. But for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars, for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. Our business fabric is shot through with it, and nothing will stop it but better understanding all around. Now, this is an interesting paragraph. Basically, in this paragraph, he's saying, if I knew now what I know about mm-hmm. the recovery program and about the step, I probably could have helped to save the lives of three people who died. Uh, that's really, really powerful. And he also talks about the money it takes to train an executive. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's the stupidest thing a business can do is fire somebody for drinking. In this day and age, it can it can take a million dollars to to train a really high level executive, and you know you're going to let them go when there's there's actually a recovery process that may not be the best business decision. Um, you know, human resource departments are are good human resource, not the type of human resource department that's all for you know the company and trying to figure out how to downsize and fire people without getting sued. I mean, the real human uh, resource departments that uh, that care about their human resources understand uh, understand that uh, uh, the, sometimes the best the best business decision is to get the guy to treatment mm-hmm. and, uh, and to make sure that they have another chance. Sure. You, an employer, want to understand. Nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility to, for the well-being of his help, and he usually tries to meet these responsibilities. That he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. To him, the alcoholic has often seemed to be a fool of the first magnitude. Because of the employee's special ability or uh, of his own strong personal attachment to him, the employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond the time he ordinarily would. Some employers have tried every known remedy. More often, however, there is very little patience and tolerance. And we, who have imposed on the best of employers, can scarcely blame them if they've been short with us. Here, for instance, is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent a good two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady. I described the symptoms and supported my statements with plenty of evidence. His comment was, very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three-month leave of absence, had taken a cure, looks fine, and to clinch the matter, the board of directors told him that this was his last chance. Now, this is a beautiful example of a complete misunderstanding <laughs> of sure is. what's needed. You know, you know, I told him that he's fired if he gets drunk again. He's not going to get drunk again. You know, that's a complete you know, misunderstanding of, of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I love the way Hank went to this guy 
and talked about the powerlessness, talked about the malady, talked for two hours, explained what alcoholism was. That's what I do, you know, when I work with somebody. And when he gets done with that, the guy still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand what powerlessness looks like and, and how it shows up. So he's he's not really interested in getting involved further than threatening to fire him if he gets drunk again. Yeah. My rejoinder was that if I could afford it, I would bet him 100 to 1 the man would go on a bigger bus than ever. I felt this was inevitable and that the bank was doing a possible injustice. Why not bring the man in contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. I pointed out I had nothing to drink whatever for three years. And this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of ten men drink their heads off. Why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? Oh no, said my friend. This chap is either through with liquor or he is minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. Again, this is a, <laughs> a, a complete misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And Hank was betting 100 to 1. <clears throat> listen, listen, the guy went and had a cure. He, he went for, for several months to a sanitarium, and he'd had the, the booze cure, and he was coming back. Hank still knew the guy was going to relapse. Yeah, And when somebody strolls into to a fellowship meeting and he's just been to treatment and he's not going to engage in the steps and I, and uh, you know I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he's a real real alcoholic. I I bet 100 to 1 too that they're not going to make it. Because what what's necessary is remember in the early days what was what was very very important was actually going through these steps. It's become very very fashionable to to, to basically discuss the you know the the challenges of everyday life in in support group meetings. Um Back, back in these early days, uh, they were about the business of, of getting somebody through the steps. That was that was what they called the cure. Although you're never cured, you're only recovered. They called it uh, the cure in the early days. Mm -hmm. And the people that took that, they saw that they they stayed sober. And the people that didn't usually usually got drunk. And so Hank was Hank understood that if this guy doesn't get involved in a spiritual recovery process. He's not going to make it. Doesn't matter that he had the cure. Doesn't matter that he went to treatment. And the same same thing is is true today. I wanted to throw up my hands in uh, in discouragement, for I saw that my banking acquaintance had missed the point entirely. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from a deadly malady. There was nothing to do but wait. Presently, the man did slip, and of course was fired. Following his discharge, our group contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted our principles and procedure. He is undoubtedly on the high road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates a lack of understanding and knowledge on the part of employers, lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic, and lack of knowledge as to what part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. Without much ado, following his discharge, our group contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted our principles and procedures. He's now on the high road to recovery. I mean, that really is that really is a statement of hope. What they were doing back then was really working. <coughs> Excuse me. To begin with, I think you employers would do well to disregard your own drinking experience or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you have but little notion 
of the inner workings of the alcoholic mind. I want to stop there, too, because I've got to tell you, uh, um, there were a lot of non-alcoholic in support group meetings. They've, they've found their way in there for one reason or another. And, and the, the people who are the heavy drinkers, uh, the, the potential alcoholics, they do not understand the real alcoholic. They mm-hmm. do not understand the inner workings of the alcoholic mind. I, you know, I, I have, I have only met very, very few people who were non-alcoholic who understood the inner workings of the alcoholic mind, and they were, they were professionals in the treatment field. Mm-hmm. The, the average person who doesn't have, you know, years of training, who's not alcoholic, just, just, you, you have to experience powerless, Monty, right, to, to really be able yeah. to understand it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think. Uh... You know, we've heard it said my my parents or my in-laws or whoever just don't understand my alcoholism. Uh, and I think, you know, nor should they have to. If, does that make sense? Um, yeah. You know, we would like them to. But when it comes to people coming into the fellowship, and we've talked about this at length, and I talk about this all the time uh, here amongst uh, my fellows here. Boy, it's it's it's. Yeah, sometimes you might as well just drop an H bomb on the meeting and kill everybody. <laughs> you know, we're we're coming in and we're saying, uh, you know, we can recover by, uh, you know, sitting on our back, looking at the stars for a couple hours a night. We'll call that meditation, and and uh, get up in the morning and ask God to guide our day, and and that should do it. Well, that might that might do it for for people that really are not alcoholic, but it's not going to avail much of anything, um, you know, if you really truly are an alcoholic of the hopeless kind. I mean, it, there's no magic in the steps. That's just ink on paper. Yeah, you know. Uh, and, and I think was it you who said one time that um, you'd even like to see the steps not even be on the wall. Uh, yeah, the you know putting putting the steps on the wall uh, uh, leads to people working the steps off the wall, and when you do that, right. your program is off the wall. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I see that all the time. And I did that, Chris, in, in the early years of my recovery. I read the steps on the wall. Therefore, I comprehended them. Therefore, I had done a program. That's what I thought. There's a lot of people who think because they go to a lot of step meetings, they've they've taken the step. Yeah, yeah. It, it's you know it's. It's it's sad it's sad to say, but uh, but you know I I understand I understand the the hopeless uh, the hopeless alcoholic I yeah. understand the person who you know has has desperately tried a whole lot of different things multiple treatments multiple times in and out in and out of the support groups you know I I understand those people and I I usually can break through to them pretty quickly because I do what this book says I talk about the hopelessness mm-hmm. of the malady. Mm-hmm. The hopelessness of the malady isn't isn't the most uh, uh, the most popular thing to share mm-hmm. in mo- in most uh, support groups. That they they want to talk about the challenges of life and you know how they feel about them and you know what's going on. They don't want to talk about uh, powerlessness. They don't want to talk about hopelessness. They don't want to talk about a solution. You know there there are groups that do, but they're in the minority. Uh, but but I'll, I'll tell you what if if you're what this if you identify yourself just from the description in this book as a as a real alcoholic a hopeless alcoholic you know you're gonna you're gonna need the the process you're gonna need the recovery process you you're not gonna 
if you're able to stay sober in the meetings, you're going to be lucky. But even if that's the case, you're going to be incredibly unhappy. Uh, you know, you're going to be suffering from all kinds of emotional, mental, psychic trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, just just staying sober. Uh, they they understood that very very well back in the day that, that you need to be offered something more. You need to be offered a, a change in attitude and outlook. Yeah. So it says here, instead, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices, based on uh, your own experiences. Those of you who drink moderately are almost certain to be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally (laughs) and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things, which so far as the alcoholic is concerned are not always so. This happens in the support groups, okay? The people who come in and are able to just put the plug in the jug, okay? Yeah. They don't understand the people who can't, mm-hmm. and they and, and try to tell them that it's a non-alcoholic trying to compare themselves to an alcoholic, and you will be dropping an H bomb in that meeting. Mm-hmm. But but if you if you use this textbook um, and the descriptions in it, if you use use them uh, correctly, you, you're going to see that the person who can put the plug in the jug is not. Uh, is not is not described as a hopeless alcoholic in this book. They're described as a heavy drinker, a problem drinker. So uh, so again, the, the saddest thing is uh, the misunderstanding that happens with al- with relapsing alcoholics in groups filled with people who aren't alcoholic. It's the saddest thing I've seen, and, and you know, um, uh, it, it really it really is a shame. And you know, the big book movement, you know, for want of a, a, a better term. Is trying to trying to address that. You know, the, the exact person uh, AA was designed to help is is not finding help in AA. You know, so the big book movement is really trying to address that that travesty of justice. And every once in a while, one of those guys is going to sidle into your meeting and annoy everybody because they're going to start talking about the problem and talking about the solution mm-hmm. as as we're supposed to. And, and you know, you know, Chris, I, I've noticed that uh, uh, a lot of the folks that are the heavy drinkers or the alcohol abusers, but aren't aren't true alcoholics, um, they almost treat the book as if it was a something that can just kind of help you while you're in the meetings. You know, kind of, kind of a kind of a little self help thing on the side. You know, like a like something hanging on the wall instead of the heart of this thing. They're the, they're the first people who will say, you know, it says in the book, we know only a little. You know, my therapist says. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're the first people who are going to, you know, say something like that. And and you'll understand immediately what, what, what you're dealing with, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Let's let's say let's say you you know, you're a person who wants to go to AA and wants to join up with AA. How foolish would it be to to, to, to disregard the textbook? Oh yeah, yeah. It wouldn't make any sense at all. It'd be like signing up for a college course for in photography and just saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to read the instructions. I just want to just sit here. <laughs> and how ridiculous would it be to like brag in a meeting that I don't deal with that textbook? I do it this way. 
Yeah. I, I mean, how, how, how stupid is it? Like, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Let's, let's say, you, you know, you want to you wanna get a calculus experience, and you go and you sign up for calculus, and you re- absolutely refuse to open the textbook. Uh, you just sit in the calculus classroom listening about calculus and raising your hand and sharing and asking questions about calculus, but you never open the book, you never do any of the exercises, you never solve any of the problems, and you never, you never get the calculus experience. That would be kind of stupid. You'd be yeah. wasting your money. Yeah. Now, you know, people do this all the time in 12-step groups. They ignore the 12 steps and, you know, uh, hold court and, and act like they've really got something to share when they've got no experience with it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. They're sharing, uh, they're sharing opinions, and uh, all of a sudden somebody will come in and share an, uh, uh, some experience, and they'll get mad at them. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, you know, it, we talked about this the other day, and this happened. Uh, I witnessed this in a meeting uh, a couple of days ago, where a guy who he definitely is he he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, um, but he's being taught some things that are just you know are misleading him, and he sat there and go, said, "Oh, the world falling around down around me, and this is happening. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do." And you brought that up a few weeks ago. And I couldn't help it. I <laughs> you raised your hand. Didn't oh you? yeah, I did. I did. I you know, and I didn't apologize. I, guess, I suppose you could say I cross-talked. I said, you know what? If I don't know what to do, you know, um, it's probably because I haven't been reading the instructions. If I've got a swing set to put together and I don't know how to put it together, I don't sit there and say I don't know what to do. I read the instructions and then I do the instructions. And, uh, you know, and I talked about how how we have promises at uh, with every one of these steps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't be expected to experience the promises that are in step four if I haven't gone through and experienced the promises that are in step three. You know, what am I doing? And, and I, we, we talk about the promises, the ninth step promises, you know. I don't know anybody lately that I've heard read those things that pays attention to the part in the very beginning that says it talks about uh, this phase of our recovery. The amends phase. We're not talking about saying you're powerless. You know, admitting I'm powerless and my life unmanageable uh, isn't going to isn't going to cause the promises in the ninth step to come true. You know, you want to you want to shake somebody, shake a meeting up, Monty. Go in there and, as a topic, sh- uh, talk about the tenth step promises. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody will be scratching their head, like what? <laughs> and that's usually because very few people have experience with the tenth step yeah. promises because they haven't done the first nine. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's um, the minor only the minority um, <clears throat> in the in the fellowships in any fellowship. Any twelve-step fellowship, only yeah. the, ver- the very small minority are the people with real experience with the recovery. Sure, you bet. As a, as a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you can control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head, and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be with anyone else. Save the spineless and stupid. Can I? I need to ask you a question, though, Chris. Yes. What is a mild bender? <laughs> Isn't that like saying jumbo shrimp? A mild bender might be like eight beers or six beers. 
you know, <laughs> like like a, a non-alcoholic would say, boy, I tied one on last night. Right. You know, because I had four uh, gin and tonics. Yeah. Um, I, I would do four gin and tonics just to be able to <clears throat> start drinking the gin. Oh, yeah, before you even got to the bar, you know. You know, get my system working. Mm-hmm. Uh, when dealing with an alcoholic, you have to fight an ingrained annoyance that he could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may still have to check this feeling and remember that your employee is very ill, being seldom as weak and irresponsible as he appears. Powerlessness powerlessness is not being weak and irresponsible. It's being powerless. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's a completely different concept. It's not being morally depraved or or, you know, spineless or weak. It's being powerless. Take a look at the alcoholic in your organization. Is he not usually brilliant, fast-thinking, imaginative, and likable? Remember, an alcoholic was writing this. Yeah. <laughs> you an on it, they might have some different opinions. <laughs> when sober, does he not work hard and have a knack for getting things done? Review his qualities and ask yourself whether he would be worth retaining. If sober, uh, do you owe him the same obligation you feel toward other sick employees? Like if somebody goes out on leave for, for cancer, do you fire him? You know? Yeah. No. Of course is not. he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, whether the reason be humanitarian or business or both, then you will wish to know what to do. The first part has to do with you. Can you stop feeling that you are dealing with, only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will? If you have difficulty about that, I suggest you reread chapters two and three of this book, where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length. Again, for any understanding of step one, of any understanding of powerlessness, you need to internalize chapters two and chapters three mm -hmm. in this book. Before you can be a sponsor or go help somebody, mm -hmm. you better know chapter two and chapter three, because if you can't describe the problem to the individual you're you're talking to, you're never going to be able to convince them of your solution. Yeah, if they don't know, if they don't have a need, if they don't know they have a need, then why would they search for a solution? Yeah, what do you have to offer? Yeah, if you can't if you can't detail the problem and then detail the solution. Yeah, you as a businessman know better than most what that when you deal with any problem, you must know what it is. Having conceded that your employee is ill, can you forgive him for what he has done in the past? Can you shelve the resentment you may hold because of his past absurdities? Can you fully appreciate that the man has been a victim of crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain? I well remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain from within. No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so handicapped. You know, uh, some of some of the some of their perspective on uh, on physiology is is, uh, is dated, but uh, but I understand what they mean. Mm -hmm. Your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps pretty messy ones. They may disgust you. You may be puzzled by them, being unable to understand how such a seemingly above board chap could be so involved. But you can generally change these, no matter how bad, to the abnormal action of alcohol on his mind. When drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion will be terrible. Nearly always these antics indicate nothing more than temporary aberration, and you should tr so treat them. 
Okay, if you put a quart and a half of whiskey in your body, Monty, you, you know you're gonna you're gonna do some things that you normally wouldn't do sober. Yeah. I mean, who knows what that, what that much alcohol does to your brain? But the alcoholic goes into a blackout and you know is is standing and conscious, but not really sane. Um, and that's basically what this. Uh, what Hank is, is telling us here. This is not to say that all alcoholics are honest and upright when not drinking. Of course that isn't so, and you will have to be careful that such people don't impose on you. Seeing your attempt to understand and help, some men will try to take advantage of your kindness. If you're sure your man does not want to stop, you may as well discharge him. The sooner the better. You are not doing him a favor by keeping him on. Firing such an individual may prove a blessing to him. It may be just the jolt he needs. I know in my own particular case that nothing my company could have done would have stopped me for so long as I was able to hold my position. I could not possibly realize how serious my situation was. Had they fired me first and had they then taken steps to see that I was presented with a solution contained in this book, I might have returned to them six months later, a well man. But there are many men who want to stop right now, and with them you can go far. If you make a start, you should be prepared to go the limit, not in the sense that any great expense or trouble is to be expected, but rather in the matter of your own attitude, your understanding, tr your understanding treatment of the case. Perhaps you have such a man in mind. He wants to quit drinking, and you want to help him, even if, be, if it only be a matter of good business. You know something of alcoholism because you read chapters 2 and 3. You see that he is mentally and physically sick, you are willing to overlook his past performances. Suppose you call the, uh, the man in and go at him like this. This is, like, this is the, probably the first example of an intervention, an employment intervention. Um, hit him point blank with that thought that you know all about his drinking and that it must stop. Say you appreciate his abilities, would like to keep him, but cannot if he continues to drink. That you mean just what you say, and you should mean it too. Next, assure him that you are not proposing to lecture, moralize, or condemn. That if you have done so formally, it was because you misunderstood. Say, if you possibly can, that you have no hard feelings toward him. At this point, bring out the idea of alcoholism, the sickness. Enlarge on that fully, as it's done in Chapter 2 and 3. Remark that you have been looking into the matter. You are sure of what you say, hence uh, you change, your change of attitude. Hence, your willingness to deal with the problem as though it were a disease. You are willing to look at your man as gr a gravely ill person with this qualification, being perhaps fatally ill. Does your man want to get well? And right now. You ask because many alcoholics being warped and drugged do not want to quit. But does he? Will he take every necessary step, submit to anything to get well to stop drinking forever? If he says yes, this is the same kind of qualification we, we go over when we're, uh, when we're attempting to take somebody through the steps. Mm -hmm. If he says yes, does he really mean it, or down inside does he think he is fooling you, and, if, and that after rest and treatment he will be able to get away with a few drinks now and then? Probe your man thoroughly on these points. Be satisfied he's not deceiving himself or you. Not a word about this book unless you are sure you ought to introduce it at this juncture. If he temporizes and still thinks he can ever drink again, even beer, you may as well discharge him after the next bender, which, if an alcoholic, he is certain to have. 
Tell him that emphatically <clears throat> and mean it. Either you are dealing with a man who can and will get well, or you are not. If not, don't waste time with them. This may seem severe, but it is usually the best course. They need to say, yes, I'm willing to quit drinking. I want to quit drinking for good and for all, and I'm willing to go to any length mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. After satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, you may suggest a definite course of action. For most alcoholics who are drinking or who are just getting over a spree, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, detoxing, even imperative. Some physicians favor cutting off the liquor sharply and prefer to use little or no sedative. This may be wise in some instances, but for most of it, for most of us, it is barbaric torture. <laughs> for severe cases, some doctors prefer a slower tapering down process followed by a health farm or sanitarium, and that's the way it is today. They'll put you on Ativan. They'll put you on Librium today. It's insane if somebody is a heavy, heavy-duty uh, alcoholic to just take the alcohol away from them. Yeah. They, can, they could die in the DTs. Yep. Other doctors prefer a few days of detoxification, removal of poisons from the system by uh, carthotics, belladonna, and the like, followed by a week of mild exercise and rest. Again, you know, they don't do it this way anymore, but that's, that's a medical, medical procedure, and those have changed. Having, having tried them all, I personally favor the latter, though the matter of physical treatment should, of course, be referred to your own doctor. Whatever the method, its object should be to thoroughly clear mind and body of the effects of alcohol. In competent hands, this seldom takes long, nor should it be very expensive. Your man is entitled to be placed in such physical condition that he can think straight and no longer physically crave liquor. Okay, as long as liquor's in your system, you crave it if you're an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So they, they say we, we favor hospitalization for the befogged. In the early days during the 12-step calls, they would put you in the hospital and make sure you were detoxed. Uh, and then they would come in and start talking to you. These handicaps must be removed if you're going to give them a, the chance you want them to have. Propose such a procedure to him. Offer to advance the cost of treatment if necessary. But make it plain that any expense will later be deducted from his pay. Make him fully responsible. It is much better for him. Okay, that's that really is a that's a good principle. And yeah. remember, all they're recommending in this book is detox. They really never recommend the 28 day or the 98 day mm-hmm. thing that we see today, Monty. They recommend detox, and then they recommend the AA program. Mm-hmm. When your man accepts your offer, point out that. Physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart. To get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. Mm. He must place recovery above everything, even home and business, for without recovery, he will lose both. I love that line. So many people amble into uh, to, to sobriety and amble into the to the 12-step fellowships, Monty, but they don't make it a priority in their life. Yeah, The things that happen in their family or the things that happen in their business always take precedence. This book is basically saying if you do that, if you allow business or family life to override your needs as far as your recovery process, you're probably going to lose all of it, your recovery, your business, and your family. We have a uh, we have a, a slogan out here. I don't know if you have it out there or not, but uh, uh, I got sober 
I got a job. I got a car. I got a girlfriend. I got drunk. <laughs> yeah. 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 You allow the things that uh, that recovery gave you take you away from recovery. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's here's the one that just it's like it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Uh, well, okay, I know my family has to come after recovery. My recovery comes before my family. Recovery comes before my job, but it can't come before God. God comes first. And I look at that person. And I'm thinking, what? That, that's that's just a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, that goes without saying. What do you think? What do you think this is all about? Yeah, dangling. And, and and why would why would God drag you away from the recovery? Yeah, process? that would make no sense. Uh, I just and, and I I get that from some of my uh, some of my friends that have been involved in in, in their faith and uh, have fallen into alcoholism or um, have dealt with it most of their lives, and they just don't they don't understand yet, and they think, by golly, you know. Um, Sunday comes first, and if I'm gonna, you know, if I, I I'll drink all week, but doggone it, Sunday I'm gonna stay sober. I'm not gonna go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah, un, un, you know, unbelievable. Um, yeah, I I I really see if you're going to the meetings uh, Monday through Saturday, I don't really see a problem taking uh, taking a day off to go to church. You know what 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 um what I what I've seen though is uh, the the most dangerous thing I've seen is I've seen. I've seen p- people who are really, really uh, involved in their religion basically come into AA to try to find converts and then drag them, uh, you know, out out of the, out of the recovery fellowships and into their their faith, and then really don't take responsibility yep. when the individual relapses. Right. You know, right. It's their fault. It's not. It's not the person's yeah. fault who's relapsing. They didn't pray hard enough. Quite yeah. Often. Yeah, I do too. Show that you have every confidence in his ability to recover. While on the subject of confidence, tell him that so far as you are concerned, this will be a strictly personal matter. His alcoholic derelictions, the treatment about to be undertaken, these will never be discussed without his consent. Cordially wish him success and say you want to have a long chat with him on his return. To return to the subject matter of this book, it contains, as you have seen, full directions by which your employee may solve his problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Full direction by which your employee may solve his problem. They're basically saying if you do the things in this book, your 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 problem is solved. You said okay. Um, in the manuscript you're reading, you're saying it says full direction, correct? Yes. In uh, in my book, which is the third edition, it says full suggestions. Interesting change, huh? <laughs> well. You know, somebody told Bill, instead of saying directions, you should say suggestions. Instead of saying you need to, say we did. Yeah, we don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you know, we we, cer- we certainly don't want to offend anybody who are, you know who's going to die if they don't do this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I I really don't mind offending people. I, I don't either. Step on your feelings and step on your grave. Yeah. To you, some of the ideas which it contains are novel. Perhaps some of them don't make sense to you. Possibly you are not quite in sympathy with the approach we suggest. By no means do we offer it as the last word on this subject, but so far as we are concerned, it has been the best word so far. Our approach often does work. After all, you are looking for results rather than methods. Whether your employee likes it or not, he will learn the grim truth about alcoholism. That won't hurt him a bit, though he does not go for the remedy at first. 
I suggest I suggest you draw our book to the attention of the doctor who is to attend your patient during treatment. Ask that the book be read the moment the patient is able, while he is acutely depressed, if possible. The doctor should approve a spiritual approach. And besides, he ought to tell the patient the truth about his condition, whatever that happens to be. The doctor should encourage him to acquire a spiritual experience. At this stage, it will be just as well if the doctor does not mention you in connection with the book. Above all, neither you, the doctor, nor anyone should place himself in a position of telling the man he must abide by the contents of this volume. The man must decide for himself. You cannot command him. You can only encourage. And you will surely agree that it may be better to withhold any criticism you may have of our method until you see whether it works. You are betting, of course, that your changed attitude in the contents of this book will turn the trick. In some cases it will, and in others it will not. But we think that if you persist, the percentage of successes will gratify you. When our work spreads and our numbers increase, we hope your employees may be put in personal contact with some of us, which, needless to say, will be more effective. Meanwhile, we are sure a great deal can be accomplished if you will follow the suggestions of this chapter. <laughs> hmm. You know, think about think about that, Monty. They're they're really expecting you to be able to to just do the instructions in this book without any contact with any other recovered alcoholics. Hmm. That's one of the things that's uh, that's that's been forgotten about this book. That this was this was supposed to provide mail order recovery. Mm-hmm. Now they found through experience they found that it's a lot easier, a lot easier for people to buy into this process if there's other people that they can see uh, who who have bought into it and, and who are you know who are recovered. There's no doubt about that. But as the fellowship was growing, they didn't have meetings everywhere. They mm-hmm. had two meetings. So, you know, they really expected this volume to be able to uh, produce mail-order uh, recovery. And in many cases, it has. <clears throat> I, like I say, though, the, the majority of the successes come from spreading it, you know, uh, one alcoholic to the other. Yeah. Uh, on your employee's return, call him in and ask him what happened. Ask him if he thinks he has the answer. Get him to tell you how he thinks it will work and what it has to be about, what he has to do about it. Make him feel free, free to dis, uh, make him feel free to discuss his problems with you if he cares to. Show him you understand and that you will not be upset by anything he wishes to say. In this connection, it is important that you remain undisturbed if the man proceeds to tell you things which shock you. He may, for example, reveal that he has padded his expense account or that he has planned to take your best customers away from you. In fact, he may say almost anything if he's accepted our solution, which, as you know, demands rigorous honesty. Charge this off as you would a bad account and start afresh with him. If he owes you money, make terms which are reasonable. From this point on, never rake up the past unless he wants to discuss it. If he speaks of his home situation, be patient and make helpful suggestions. Let him see that he can talk frankly with you so long as he does not bear tales or criticize others. With the kind of employee you want to keep, such an attitude will command undying loyalty. The greatest enemies of the alcoholic are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. Wherever men are gathered together in business, there will be rivalries, and arising out of these a certain amount of office politics. Sometimes the alcoholic has an idea that people are trying to pull him down, Often this is not so at all, but sometimes his drinking will be used as a basis of criticism. One instance comes to mind in which a malicious individual was always making friendly little jokes of an alcoholic's drinking exploit. 
In another case, an alcoholic was sent to a hospital for treatment. Only a few knew of it at first, but within a short time, it was billboarded throughout the entire company. Naturally, this sort of thing uh, decreases a man's chance of recovery. The employer should make it his business to protect the victim from this kind of talk if he can. The employer cannot play favorites, but he can always try to defend the man from needless provocation and unfair criticism. As a class, alcoholics are energetic people. They work hard and they play hard. Your man will be on his mettle to make good. Being somewhat weakened and faced with physical and mental readjustment to a life which knows no alcohol, he may overdo. Don't let him work 16 hours a day just because he wants to. Encourage him to play once in a while. Make it possible for him to do so. He may wish to do a lot for other alcoholics, and something of the sort may come up during business hours. Don't begrudge him a reasonable amount of time. This work is necessary to maintain his sobriety. So, Monty, what's necessary to maintain somebody's sobriety? The work. Going out and doing 12-step Yeah, calls. going out and doing the, the, the taking this thing uh, to the alcoholic who still suffers, man. Um, and, and, you know, here, here's something that I think is, I think of that primary purpose thing, you know. What is our primary purpose? And... It's interesting that if a meeting, and this is just my opinion now, but this, this see, this stirs things up in me right here, uh, that if a meeting is a um, of a particular nature, if it's, let's say it's a closed meeting, and somebody comes in, and he doesn't know if he's an alcoholic or not. I mean, he, he, he he's confused. He, he wants help. He's not even sure what an alcoholic is. Uh, he comes in. He's in tears. Can you help me? Well, this is a closed meeting. You know, you have to know if you're an alcoholic or not, because I've heard this. Well, at that point, I think our primary purpose should take over. Yeah, are you are you being of max, maximum usefulness right. to God and your fellow man by throwing them out? Because I think blocking people, you know, picking and choosing who you're going to help in the sense of, you know, the color of their skin, the way they dress or smell, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That is going to, you know what's going to happen? That kind of attitude towards your fellow man <clears throat> is going to, to lead you back into a place of selfish self-centeredness, and you'll drink again. You know, my own personal opinion is uh, if you're in a 12-step fellowship that's closed and somebody comes in who doesn't identify themselves as the right, you know, the right entity. Yeah. <clears throat> um, first of all, you have to ask yourself, does he even know what right. the definition of that is? Yeah. Has anybody sat with them, with him? You know, somebody <coughs> should get with the individual and talk to him about the problem, about what powerlessness is. It, you know, if, if it's an alcohol fellowship, you know, talk to him about alcoholism. If it's a drug fellowship, talk to him about what, what being a drug addict is. You know, but you don't, you don't shame them and you don't throw them out. They may never come back. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen it happen uh, that a group conscience will will break out and they'll say, let's open this, let's open this meeting up, you know, so that, and talk about step one. I, I think that's an appropriate way to go, yeah. because you know, some, sometimes, sometimes the, sometimes the only requirement for membership in some of these fellowships is ridiculous, really. Like, all right, let let's. Let's just say the only requirement for membership in a particular uh, fellowship would be the desire to, to stop drinking. I don't. I, I can't say that I have the desire to stop drinking, money. I stopped. I yeah. have the desire to stay stopped. Yeah. 
it's a completely different thing. Right. So you, you have to you have to understand that you're there. You're there to be helpful. Mm-hmm. It helps your program to be helpful. What kind of a horse's patoot are you to be the guy to raise his hand and say, "Get out of here! This is closed." Yeah. <laughs> you know what kind of what kind of recovery is that? And I've sat there. I I know the guy, and he is just as bold as can be. And I it drives me nuts. He'll say, "Are you an alcoholic?" Uh, well, I don't know. Well, then I'd like you to leave. <laughs> And it, it, I, I sit there stunned. I, I can't believe that somebody would would actually do that. You know, it just blows my mind. That's that's intolerant and it's judgmental. It's oh, horrible. And uh, listen, I'm all for any group that has a primary purpose. Yeah. Uh, any group that you know wants wants uh, participation to be alcoholic or participation to be drug addict or cocaine addict or whatever, they have the right to their primary purpose. But but you know you don't. You don't use directives. You don't use traditions to hurt people. That's not what they're for. Yeah. They're there to protect the integrity of uh, of the fellowship. But if if you're if you're hurting individuals, that really hurts the integrity of the fellowship. You know, have somebody qualify. You're, you're supposed to be qualifying people anyway. In the early days, nobody went to the meetings first. They went to the steps first. They weren't even invited to the meetings until they had a clue. You know, today anybody right. can, can wander into a fellowship. You know, with, without a clue. And see, a and, lot of and people again, a responsible, a responsible member uh, will, will take responsibility and try to get uh, try to get some of that individual's time, and at least explain to them what the heck is going on. I mean, if you don't if you don't have informed members, you're going to have chaos in your group. Yeah, yeah. My my good friend Bruce uh, always says, uh, uh, you know, the the steps didn't come out of the meetings. The meetings came out of the steps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Where were we here anyway? Let's see. <clears throat> I think we are. Well, I can't even tell you because I'm on the the manuscript. But it says, oh, yeah. after your man has gone along without drinking for a few months, try to is. make use of his services with other employees who are giving you the alcoholic runaround. Provided, of course, they are willing to have a third party in the picture. Don't hesitate to let the alcoholic who has recovered but holds a relatively unimportant job talk to a man with a better position. Being on a radically different basis of life, he will never take advantage of the situation. Mm. Monty, what I would do is uh, I usually ke- I usually kept it quiet that I was uh, a recovered alcoholic, except with the human resource department. I would let them know because they are they are going to be the people who have to deal with the alcohol problems. And I would tell them, I would say, you know, I haven't had a drink in so many years. Uh, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, I I can really be of help if you have an alcohol if you have an alcoholic problem or an alcoholic employee who you know wants to have help or needs mm-hmm. to talk. Uh, I'm available, and, and I I would let the human resource department know. I, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't let everybody know, but I would let the human resource department know. Yeah. I think. Have you ever found this true? I think some employers treat the alcoholic with more respect than we do within the fellowship. Yeah, well, you know, there's HIPAA and there's anti-discrimination things these days. I mean, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction are diseases, and if and if you discriminate against somebody for them in the right way, uh, you can have a discrimination suit. There's no doubt about it. Mm. So you kind of have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
You must trust your man. Long experience with alcoholic excuses naturally makes you suspicious. When his wife next calls saying he is sick, don't jump to the conclusion he is drunk. If he is and is still trying to recover upon our basis, he will presently tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job. For he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. Let him see you are not bothering your head about him at all, that you are not suspicious, nor are you trying to run his life so he will be shielded from temptation to drink. If he is conscientiously following the program of recovery, he can go anywhere your business may call him. Do not, uh, do not promote him, however, until you are sure. In case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go. If you are sure he doesn't mean business, there is no doubt you should discharge him. If, on the contrary, you are sure he is doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance. But you should feel under no obligation to do so, for your obligation has been discharged already. In any event, don't let him fool you, and don't let sentiment get the better of you if you are sure he ought to go. Mm. There's another thing you might do. If your organization is a large one, your junior executives might be provided with this book. You might let them know you have no quarrel with the alcoholics of your organization. These juniors are often in a difficult position. Men under them are frequently their friends. So for one reason or another, they cover these men, hoping matters will take a turn for the better. They often jeopardize their own positions by trying to help serious drinkers who should have been fired long ago or else given an opportunity to get well. After reading this book, a junior executive can go to such a man and say, Look here, Ed, do you want to stop drinking or not? You put me on the spot every time you get drunk. It isn't fair to me or the firm. I've been learning something about alcoholism, and if you are an alcoholic, you're a, mu you're a mighty sick man. You, act, you sure act like one. The firm wants to help you get over it if you are interested. There is a way out, and I hope you have sense enough to try it. If you do, your past will be forgotten, and this fact that you went, went away for treatment will not be mentioned. But if you cannot or will not stop drinking, I th think you ought to resign. Your junior executive may not agree with uh, the contents of our book. He need not and often should not show it to his alcoholic prospect, but at least he will understand the problem and will no longer be less misled by ordinary promises. He will be able to take a position with such a man which is eminently fair and square. He will have no further reason for covering up an alcoholic employee. It boils right down to this. No man should be fired just because he is alcoholic. If he wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. If he cannot or does not want to stop, he should usually be discharged. The exceptions are few. We think this method of approach will accomplish several things for you. It will, prompt, it will promptly bring drinking situations to light. It will enable you to restore good men to useful activity. At the same time, you will feel no reluctance to rid yourselves of those who cannot or will not stop. Alcoholism may be causing your organization considerable damage in its waste of money, men, and reputation. We hope our suggestions will help you plug up this sometimes serious leak. We do not expect you to become a missionary, attempting to save all who happen to be alcoholic. <clears throat> Being a businessman it is, is enough these days, but we can sensibly urge that you stop this waste and give your worthwhile man a chance. The other day an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm mighty glad you fellows got over your drinking, but the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us, for as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. This same company spends millions for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. 
There is company insurance. There is real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But alcoholism, well, they just don't have it. Perhaps this is a typical attitude. We who have collectively seen a great deal of business life, at least from the alcoholic angle, had to smile at this gentleman's opinion. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism costs his organization every year. That company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics. We believe that managers of large enterprises often have little idea how prevalent this problem is. Perhaps this is a guess, but we have a hunch it's a good and it's a good one. If you still feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, you might well take another look down the line. Uh, you you may take make some interesting discoveries. Of course, this chapter refers to alcoholics, sick people, deranged men, Monty. What our friend, the vice president, had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. As to them, his, pro- his policy is probably sound. But as you see, he does not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. And again, that's one of the big problems today, distinguishing between mm-hmm. the, the habitual or whoopee drinker and the alcoholic. Uh, being a businessman, you might like to have a summary of this chapter. Here it is. One, acquaint yourself with the nature of alcoholism. Two. Be prepared to discount and forget your man's past. Three, confidentially offer him medical treatment and cooperation provided you think he wants to stop. Four, have the alcohol thoroughly removed from his system and give him a suitable chance to recover physically. Five, have the doctor in attendance present him with this book, but don't cram it down his throat. Six, have a frank talk with him when he gets back from his treatment, assuring him of your full support, encouraging him to say anything he wishes about himself, and making it clear the past will not be held against him. Seven, ask him to place recovery from alcoholism ahead of all else. Eight, don't let him overwork. Nine, protect him when justified from malicious gossip. Ten, if after you have shot the works, he will not stop, then let him go. It is not to be expected that you give your alcoholic employee disproportionate amount of time and attention. He is not to be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose upon you. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying today. Today I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. Why not? They have a better way of life, and they have been saved from the living death. I've enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. You, Mr. Employer, may have the same experience. Very good. Very good. There's a, there's a lot of uh, great suggestions in this chapter that a, uh, a sponsor should uh, heed as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. It's, it's you know, they're parallel. The the suggestions to the employers is... is uh, they basically come out of the chapter working with others. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sound principles for working with uh, with the alcoholic. Ah, oh, boy, good stuff, uh, good stuff. If you're an employer out there and and, and uh, you're dealing with any of this, uh, or you know somebody that is, uh, please go back and play this again and and listen to it. Uh, <coughs> open up your big book, or or uh, if you know somebody who's never. Uh, read this book before. Uh, I I recommend this book to everyone because because sooner or later, sooner or later, at the very least, there's going to be somebody that you know uh, that's going to need some help with the way things are going in the world today. And it might not be alcohol, but the uh, the problem is still the same. I, my wife and I were talking the other day, Chris, about uh, the problem and the solution. 
Um, you know, I kind of, for my own life, I kind of look at step one as uh, I admitted I was powerless over my separation from God and that my life had become unmanageable. There you go. Yeah. That's a good way and, to look and, at it. And that's, that's the, the problem's the same. The solution is also the same. And I think everybody, everybody should have this book in their library of books. And it's not, friends, it's not another self-help book. That's not what it is. Um, we joke about it, our friends at Hazelden. You know, the, the largest uh, publisher of self-help books are people whose problem was, was self-help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we joke around about that, but we, we love those guys. But uh, this is a way a new way of living and I just uh, I recommend this book to anybody and um, you can go to we have several links on our our um, <clears throat> on our site to, to take you to uh, pick up one of these books Alcoholics Anonymous uh, next week a vision for you and that is our last uh, our last chapter in uh, walking through the big book correct well I, th- I think we'll do uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare in all fairness we did Bill's story Oh, that's interesting because I was I was thinking that the other day. I just uh, you just reminded me of it. I think that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea too. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, my friend, my friend Chris Schroeder, thank you once again. Monty, it's always a pleasure. This is uh, this is something I've had a lot of fun doing. And, and, and folks, I'm just going to warn you right now: we may be embarking on uh, another series called the Twelve Traditions. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If, 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 if you haven't had enough of this already, <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you once again. You have a great uh, rest of the evening. Monty, you take care. Okay, and my friends, don't forget to come back next week when once again Chris Schroeder and the Monty Man walk through the big book. So bye bye. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>